Welcome to the Taliban Podcast. I'm Ben Rowley. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming Tasmanian state election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Kate Crowley. Kate is an Associate Professor of Public and Environmental Policy at the University of Tasmania. Hello, Kate. Hi, Ben. And my second guest is Mike Lester. Mike was a political journalist in Tasmania for over 20 years, a political advisor, and is now a PhD candidate at the University of Tasmania. Hello, Mike. Good morning. How are you? Tasmanians will go to the polls on May 1 to elect the House of Assembly and three out of 15 seats in the Legislative Council. Tasmania's Premier Peter Gutwin called a state election in March, 10 months ahead of schedule. The next election wasn't due to be held until March 2022. This election comes at a time where the Liberal government is doing very well in the polls and will be aiming to win a third term as a majority government under Tasmania's proportional voting system. Kate, why did Gutwin call the election so early? Well, it was really cashing in on a couple of things. One was his popularity over COVID, and the other was he sort of engineered the disendorsing of the Speaker, Sue Hickey, who was a Liberal Party member, but sort of a left-wing Liberal Party member, and so he advised her she wouldn't be re-endorsed, and that caused her to resign, which caused the Premier to say he was then in minority, which then gave him the excuse for calling a snap election. So it was all nicely engineered to cash in on COVID popularity. I think there were four reasons for Gutwin deciding to go early. I think Kate's right that this was a manufactured minority outcome to try to get that result. But I think uh, Gutwin would have been looking at the recent outcomes in Queensland and Western Australia, um, where the incumbents benefited uh, from their management of COVID. I think... um, he would have been thinking about the instability of his majority government over the over the last um, three years, uh, which has uh, been caused by having um, members on his own side who are, uh, have been difficult, such as uh, Sue Hickey, uh, who um, you know, on a number of occasions has voted against government legislation. And I think um, also I think he would have been wanting to avoid any uh, possible clash with the federal election, which is sort of, you know, coming up in the next year or so um, because of the uh, federal fallout over uh, the COVID vaccination rollout and um, uh, sex scandals and so on, the treatment of women, those sorts of issues are are resonating federally. And I think that uh, Gutman would have had a mind to stay well clear of that. In theory, the Liberal government has been in majority for the last term. The slimmest of majorities, 13 out of 25 seats. But my understanding is Sue Hickey was a new member from Clark, which covers the Hobart area. She was a Hobart city councillor. Um, and then pretty much on day one of the new parliament, um, she was supported by the Labor and Greens opposition members to become speaker against the wishes of the government. And since then, I don't know how much that particular movement of putting her in the speakership caused the breach, but she has insisted on her Liberal Party membership all along. But kind of has effectively acted as an independent, right? Like not always, but enough of the time to cause difficulty on more than one occasion. But then on top of that, there was then a kind of a counterbalancing effect when Scott Bacon retired. He was a Labor a Labor member from the same electorate from Clark, and he was replaced by Madeleine Ogilvie, a former Labor member, um, but she had subsequently left the Labor Party um, since losing her seat at the 2018 election. So when she came back in, she came back in as an independent who often was quite happy to vote with the Liberals. I, I, in my first draft of my seat guide, I referred to her as a conservative independent. Um, and she has literally days after the election was called 
um, joined the Liberal Party and is now running for the Liberal Party. So ironically, if that old parliament hadn't been dissolved, the Liberal Party would now be back in majority because Madeleine Ogilvie is now a Liberal. Yes, that's right. That's why it's manufactured, because um, the government could have held off uh, telling Sue Hickey that she wasn't going to be re-endorsed for the next election. They could have held that off until any time over the next year. And also, um, um, one could have gone along to finalise uh, negotiations with um, Madeleine Ogilvie to uh, join the, the Liberal Party formally. So they, it, it, it could have been... A majority could have been maintained without any problem at all had the government just waited an extra week and decided to. So it's clear that for the reasons I said before, you know, there are you know four other major reasons on, in Gutman's mind, and um, and this was just the I guess the formal uh, reasoning that he had to give the governor to um, to be granted a, an early election. The other reason is that. The Premier has been coming under increasing scrutiny for failing to deliver on election promises from 2018. Part of his reasoning for not doing that has been uh, having to concentrate on the COVID response, but there's been increasing pressure and there was going to be increasing pressure in 2021 on those sorts of issues. So he's cut and run on delivering on policy to go to an early election to get back in and try and uh, get a more secure majority. But in the process, as you say, also, and, and as Mike also says, to shake loose Sue Hickey, um, hopefully the Liberal Party is looking at hopefully shaking loose Sue Hickey, who has been troublesome as a speaker whilst largely supporting the government. She has been picking up a lot of social justice issues that have been left behind and has been very happy to vote with the opposition on occasion, but also to do some policy um, posturing of her own, including in opinion pieces that have caused a bit of eruption. There's not a lot of polling in Tasmania. We do have some EMRS polling that's been coming out kind of every two or three months uh, over the last year, and but the most recent of those polls is now about two months old, and we don't have anything from the election campaign at the moment. Um, but the last four polls, which take you from May 2020 to February 2021, have the Liberals between 52 and 54% of the primary vote. Um, I should say those are kind of neutral media purchased polls. There are some partisan polls I think we've seen which have generally fit with this picture. But overall, the Liberal Party is in majority territory, which is necessary under this system, or at least you need to get close to a majority of the vote to win a majority of the seats. Mike, why do you think uh, the Liberals are doing so well? Well, um I asked the question of whether they are doing as well as, as people think. They're certainly doing well in terms of the polling um, result um, based on government's popularity uh, due to his management of COVID. But if you look at all the other issues that are that are really raising the head during this campaign, um, they haven't got a good track record on, on many of those, including, um, you know, health waiting lists and um, housing and uh, rollout of their infrastructure programs which are lagging behind and um, you know money hasn't been spent that could have been generating more economic activity but on the other side there's a the economy is going um, went quite well right through COVID and is still doing quite well and Tasmanians being fairly conservative as voters generally reward governments that um, that provide a, a stable economic base so um so I think if they are doing well um, in, in that sense, then I think that it's probably as much 
a result of how the economy is perceived to be going as the uh, as the COVID result. The other thing I just want to say on the on the polling results is that you know 52, 54, 52 preference for Liberals over Labor um, in those polls that you mentioned from uh, EMRS. Um, you you really anything over forty eight percent in Tasmania will deliver you majority government generally speaking, but people should remember that you know very small differences in votes can make a very big difference in at, in terms of outcome. For example, in two thousand and fourteen, the Liberals got fifty one point three percent of the vote uh, at the election and got fifteen seats, but you know um, in two thousand and eighteen. Um, they, they got just 1% less, 50.3%, and that delivered them 13 seats. And, of course, then they had the trouble with Suhiki. So, yes, they might be doing well on the face of it, but are they really? And is there an opening for a, a minority government? Um, too early to call, I think. But um, I think that there are, there are that's given that Gutman is talking about this all the time in his advertisements and the reason for going to the election, they actually are making minority government an issue. So let's talk about minority government now. Both of you are experts in minority governments. It's often an issue in Tasmanian elections because the proportional voting system makes it easier for the Greens to win seats in the lower house and it sort of creates more room for a crossbench than in um, in other Australian elections, at least in the lower house. There's a dynamic in the in the history of Tasmanian politics, right, that there's a substantial number of voters who would prefer to vote for whichever major party can form a majority government. And so if one major party's in the lead, they bang the drum and say, you need to vote for us to get a majority. Um, and right now, obviously, the party in that position is the Liberal Party. Tell us a little bit about what that dynamic is in um, Tasmanian politics of kind of minority government avoidance. So it's very common around the country for political parties to say that they will govern in majority or not at all. But the reality of the Westminster system is obviously to get anything done in Parliament, you need 50 plus one votes. And so to refuse to govern in minority or in coalition, but in minority by having an arrangement with minor parties or independents and in coalition by um, formally, formally allying in some way. So refusing to do that is disrespecting the choice of the people and it's also failing to recognise the reality that you need 50% plus one votes in the House to do anything. So it's undermining the democratic process, but it's regular political posturing. And so we see it in Tasmania as much as um, the major parties trotted out elsewhere. But it's worth um, it's worth just noting that in Tasmania, before the advents of, advent of the Greens, minority government was fairly common, was about one third of governments, but it was usually a held power was balance of power was held by an independent um, and that could be someone who was dis- disaffected from one of the parties and ended up rejoining or it could be, you know, some rogue independent that's come in on a particular issue and it wasn't really much of an issue. But with the rise of the Greens, you've then got the splitting of the Labor vote and you've got the Greens um, shaving off some of that, which is much more politically contentious. And then the Greens seen as an ideological force, not necessarily for the good in the view of some in the Tasmanian electorate. And so then it becomes a, a much more potent message of wanting to distance the party from the Greens. So it plays out much more dramatically, I think, as Mike has certainly found in his experience. 
there are a couple of things there, and I, I agree with everything that Kate just said. But um, the it's not uncommon, of course, for um, for parties to campaign for majority. I mean, it makes sense. You're, you're not going to campaign, you know, for, for minority government if you can help it. Um, where, where it goes astray, of course, is where is is when they say that they uh, will not um, uh, enter uh, in it, under any circumstances into arrangements for minority government. Then. They're denying the reality of these uh, constitutional conventions, and um, you know, at all times we must have a government. I think, as uh, um, uh, has been pointed out uh, by other people, after the election, um, due to a, a drafting error in legislation some time ago, the governor has to appoint a new um, government seven days after the election is called, even if it's just a caretaker government. The problem is, is that. The, the, there must always be a government. So the the incumbent government going into an election has very little wriggle room in terms of what they can do uh, if, in the event of a, mon- of a minority government after the election. So as in 1996, when uh, Premier Ray Groom, leading the Liberals, went into the election uh, saying that he wouldn't go into minority government with the Greens, uh, as soon as it, it, there was a minority government, uh, he felt uh, obliged to resign and hand over to his then treasurer Tony Rundle, and Rundle then set up a um, uh, a minority government with, with uh, without a, an actual agreement with the Greens, but nonetheless the Greens supported him on the floor of the House, and um, and there were some uh, negotiations around how Parliament would operate in um, in terms of you know standing orders and that sort of thing. In this situation, both major parties have, have said they will not enter into minority government under any circumstances, but they've already modified that just a couple of days ago uh, with both uh, Premier Gutwin and opposition leader Rebecca White uh, saying that they wouldn't lead a minority government, which sort of raises the question of whether they would actually just resign and hand over to somebody else who could, which I think will be the outcome if, in the event of a minority government. And the other thing I just wanted to raise uh, in relation to, to this is that, um, um, or two things really, the, as, as elsewhere in Australia, the, um, the, the uh, combined uh, major party vote has been declining in Tasmania for, well, going back to the, as far as I can see, back to the, at least 1979 when Labor got 90, uh, sorry, when Labor and the Liberals got 95.6% of the vote, uh, to the last uh, three elections where um, the combined vote of the two major parties has been around about uh, 76% uh, uh, except in the last election where it went up to 82% and the Greens vote declined for a number of other reasons which I don't need to go into. But um, independents uh, are rarely elected in the House of Assembly in recent years. There's only been two. If you, if you discount the Green independents who were an activist party uh, in the making, um, there have only been two independents elected to the House of Assembly since uh, 1982. One was Doug Lowe, who was at the time held the record for the biggest vote, uh, individual vote of any person in Tasmania, um, and as a former Premier um, who had uh, resigned from the Labor Party uh, and sat on the crossbenches. And the other one was Bruce Goodluck, who was a Liberal, um, federal Liberal member in Tasmania uh, for uh, a couple of decades, really. And uh, and so he, he had a, a very strong following. So an ex-Labor Party Premier and an ex-Liberal Party uh, icon were the only two that were elected, which sort of makes it very difficult when you look at 
the independents running in this election uh, to see where um, anybody, with maybe the exception of Suhiki, will have a clear road through to uh, to get elected. The Greens um, have a strong uh, support base, um, particularly in uh, the southern Tasmanian region, and, and I can't see that they wouldn't win, uh, definitely would win a seat in um, in Denison, and I can't see that they would uh, um, fail to win a seat in Franklin either. For people who may not be across this, there is actually no obligation that you have a stable agreement that covers a majority of seats in the chamber that they will all be in government together, right? Like there's often you will have you'll have a fallen coalition or you'll have an agreement to not oppose the government when it comes to supply and confidence. But theoretically, you could just have a government that goes in there and says, we're going to keep governing until someone tells us not to, basically, until there's a no confidence motion. And you could end up, it's entirely possible under the current system, you could end up in a situation where you are the government until you cease to be the government. And if nobody acts to, to force you out of power um, through a no confidence motion, that kind of thing, you could just have a minority government limp along. You know, they, they wouldn't have a majority in the parliament. Even their budget would be vulnerable. But, you know, there'd be constant speculation about whether the government's going to fall, but they could remain in place. And in this situation, it sounds like you're probably right that the the best solution ironically, it would be both of these party leaders have, in order to win votes, they've had to disqualify themselves from leading their party into minority government, effectively then meaning that someone else will have to be found to lead one of those two parties in minority government. And, you know, we could find ourselves in a situation where, okay, the Liberal Party look like they're going to be the biggest party, but if they fall a seat or two short, that you could end up in such a situation where, you know, Suhiki or the Greens or whoever has the balance of power Okay, so the worst kind of government that you could have, particularly in Tasmania where it's going a minority government would be supported by the Greens, the worst kind of situation you could have is a no agreement situation where you the government limps along vote by vote and would would be attacked by the media for that and would be undermined by the opposition parties who could vote together. It and it would not play out well in terms of stability in the state and remembering we're in the midst of a pandemic where we're going to have a very uh, problematic rollout of vaccines over the next 12 months and then opening or closing the border scenarios until we've managed to deal with all the variants. So that covers really the next couple of years. So I don't believe that a, a it would be viable for a government without confidence and supply agreement to manage to get anything done. It would be a good short-term fix if you were in the run-up to an election, like the Morrison government is in that situation at the moment and it has the short-term fix of confidence and supply by a couple of crossbenchers. So it's a short-term fix, but it's not a way to set out governing. And I think that you would really need to sit down and not something else. And that is going to be problematic because I think both um, both political parties, I think at the party political level that they've they've they have some agreement amongst their membership that they won't go into a deal with the Greens. So I'm not sure how they think that's going to be managed. Just mentioning also that the the first two minority governments supported by Greens were short-lived affairs um, and considerably dated now in the um, 80s and the 90s, but the most recent government that involved the Greens was it was a quasi coalition because it brought the Greens into cabinet. It was it ran its full term. The Greens had ministries. Um, they could step outside cabinet if they wanted to oppose the government, which they rarely did. 
So it was a post-GFC government, so it was unable to deliver, and that led to a lot of criticism, which then got uh, morphed into criticism of minority government. Tasmania has five electorates. They are the same five electorates used at federal elections, although interestingly, the last federal redistribution of Tasmania was finished at the end of 2017, too late to kick in for the 2018 election. So this is the first time we're using those 2017 electoral boundaries that were first used at a federal level in 2019. So there's five electorates. Uh, each electorate will elect five people using Herr Clark. Uh, so that's sort of, it's a proportional system. It's similar to what you would use for the Senate, but there's no above-the-line voting and ballot papers are rotated, so the candidate order within each party varies and that tends to distribute the vote amongst the different candidates within a party group. You don't have the same situation you have in the Senate where all the votes go to one candidate. And that does mean you have a proportional system, but you also have a lot of competition between members in the same party. That's how Madeleine Ogilvie lost her seat in 2018. You will sometimes see particularly major party members losing their seat to someone else from the same party. Um, and about those five electorates, uh, so Clark is basically the urban seat in Hobart. That's the one where Madeleine Ogilvie is now a Liberal and Sue Hickey is now an Independent. Uh, it's probably the most progressive seat. You've got Franklin, which covers the remainder of Hobart and the southwest of the state. You've got Braddon in the north and the northwest. Uh, Bass covering Launceston and the northeast. And then Lyons kind of covers the rest, covers the middle of the state. Um are there any particular of those seats that are worth watching? I mean, Clark obviously has a lot of interesting people running for it, but um, at the moment the Liberal Party holds two each in Clark and Franklin and holds three each in the three northern seats. So they they need to hold those seats or win an equivalent number of seats to remain in power. If the Liberal Party was to fall to 12 seats, Mark, what would be your guess about the place where they'd be most likely to lose a seat? It's difficult to say, but I'd say that Franklin would be one seat to watch. Uh, back in 2018, the then Premier Hodgman got 27,000 votes, which is approximately two and a half quotas uh, in the um, in, under Herr Clark. So, so, and that helped uh, ensure that three members um, got elected for the Liberals in Franklin. Uh, Hodgman's now gone, and a couple of the candidates that have um, uh, that have come in, are, 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 or a couple of people that have come in are not as well known. Um, you've already, we've already mentioned Clark and uh, the problem with Sue Hickey, um, and, but that's a counterbalance, as you mentioned, with, um, with Bacon having gone. Um, Scott Bacon got 11, close to 12,000 um, votes for Labor, and, um, and Hickey got about 7,000 votes, I think, so it's a bit over 7,000 votes. So... Uh, where those the rest of those um, votes from Labor and the and uh, from the Liberals go is is something to watch. Now you mentioned that uh, that Clark is um, a Hobart-based uh, electorate, and that's true. But you've got to re- also remember that there are two cities in in that electorate: Hobart itself, and in the centre of Hobart, and uh, also the city of Glenorchy. And the mayor of uh, Glenorchy. Uh, is running as well as an independent candidate on on a range of issues, including things like um, uh, an anti-poker machine platform and and things like that. And she had a very high vote as mayor at, at the last uh, um, local government election. So she's someone to watch. I, I, as I said before, I think it's difficult for an independent without a uh, a major party background in Hare Clark, um, but 
she could do um, she could take a seat from Labor, for example, because of her stance, or she could take a seat, or she and Hickey combined could take a seat from the Liberals, um, and uh, so it, it's it's very interesting. There are all sorts of permutations that could come out of Clark. The others are less um, volatile in that sense. I think uh, Lyons, where White is standing, um, the leader of the Labor Party, that is, uh, she got about sixteen and a half thousand votes last time, which is you know about a quarter and a half. Um, and some people think that she'll do better in this in this election, but I still can't see that the that the Labor Party can win three in that uh, in that election. And I think that um, uh, the Liberals are likely to hold three. In in Braddon, Liberals are thinking that they could win four in Braddon. Um, it's very hard to win four. You need sixty four percent of the vote, and I don't think that that's possible. But they'll certainly win three again, and they'll win three in Bass uh, with uh, Gutwin as the Premier and, and you know, his 70% popularity rating. Well, again, I think starting with Franklin, because um, just for the listeners, when you've got a very popular Premier who brings in two and a half quotas, and he's a Liberal Premier, but he's of a left-leaning Liberal Premier, um, very, very um, good on issues of social justice. And then he departs the scene. So you imagine that there's some scope there for Labor to pick up some of that vote, particularly when they have now finally pre-selected again a mayor, a la- uh, lab- running for Labor, a mayor, but sort of of the party's right wing. So you would think that there's scope there. I think Franklin might be one to watch, as Mike has said. And um, I'll just quickly do Braddon. I think Braddon for me is interesting because it's in the north and there's a pre-selected candidate there, a returning candidate, returning from disgrace, Adam Brooks. So he's um, had some problems, legal problems in the past and he's coming in pre-selected with a minor legal problem as well. However, he got about 10,000 votes last time and I think his... um, votes are required, even if he sits on the back bench again, as he did in the last government and didn't end up doing so much because there was a cloud over his name. But if he he needs to pull in the third Liberal, Roger Gench. Now, Roger Gench was a circular head mayor, and you would have thought that that meant that he would have got a solid vote in 2018, but he didn't get a solid vote. And he's since been a very unpopular minister for housing. So they sort of need Adam Brooks to pull him in. So but I don't really think that's going to be problematic for the Liberals. It's just that it's not the lay-down misere that you'd like it to be. And then, of course, um, again, for people listening who aren't Tasmanian, Clark is sort of like the um, – it's at times quite green, but it's definitely quite Labor uh, in a city sort of um, – or spreading, as Mike says, across two cities – sort of Hobart area and it is just a dog's breakfast at the moment and if the Libs want to retain their two seats they they went about it in poorly by treating the left-leaning Lib Sue Hickey at, at, and the Speaker treating her so poorly and disendorsing her and now she's running round rogue well she only got 2,000 votes last time so it's quite a stretch for her to pull up to a quota but she may well be rewarded by that um the trouble is that that vote might be split with the mayor of Glenorchy, Christy Johnson, who is coming in on an anti-pokies agenda. Uh, I think probably the loser there might be Madeleine Ogilvie in that 
she just hung on with the coattails last time and came in on a recount and I don't know that she's going to be returned. But it's going to be quite a mixed up, shook up seat clerk and that could affect the outcome um, quite significantly. Scott Bacon having departed with his large quota. I agree with all that, but one little point is that Clark at the last election was the only seat where Labor outpolled the Liberals. The Greens vote shifted upwards a bit from um, about 10% to polling about 14% at the moment. So, you know, we have to see whether that actually holds. And some of that may be a return to the Greens of the voters who voted Labor because of Beck White's strong anti-pokies stance. She's now backflipped on that, and that could actually have some sort of statewide impact. Um, it could slightly depress the Labor vote in places where they'll get punished for it. It may it, it, it may be hard to see whether that's the case or not because Labor's been projecting so poorly and had such disunity that there's a whole bunch of factors that may end up affecting them. Whether the Greens are going to be solid beneficiaries, they may be marginal beneficiaries. I don't know that that's going to translate into much though in the way of seats. The Tasmanian Upper House Legislative Council works differently to other legislative councils around the country in that each member represents a single member electorate. There are 15 electorates and they never are all up for election at the same time. You only have two or three seats every year over a six-year cycle. The other thing to note is that they are never held alongside lower house elections, but this year they will be. Um, There are three seats. One of them was unopposed, so there's two seats, one in the kind of to the north uh, west of Hobart and then another seat in the kind of greater Launceston area. Um, they uh, One of them is a Labor-held seat and the other one's held by a Conservative Independent who's retiring. Um, be interested in your thoughts generally about those contests, but in particular, what do you think is the impact of holding the election at the same time as a lower house election, considering generally a lot less money is spent on these upper house seats. A lot of them go to independents who don't spend anywhere near as much money. But all of this is going to be happening alongside a big statewide campaign. There's actually been some talk of potential legal action after the election if uh, Legislative Council candidates breach the Electoral Act because it's not just that the spending in the Legislative Council elections is less. It's that, that it's legislatively prescribed to have an upper limit, which is quite minor. So that um, that is really um, had the in, well, it's probably had the intent, but it's definitely had the impact of keeping the legislative council elections quite down key. The fact that they're all rotated and not held at the same time as the um, House of Assembly elections also keeps party politics out of things. You've got to remember for people that don't know that the Legislative Council, well, actually it's the same as upper houses around the country. It's it's a house of review. It's not, it's not a policy propositional house. It's a house of review that's not there as an opposition or a government cheer squad, but to improve and review legislation, plug policy gaps, make suggestions not so much to oppose a government, um, but definitely to scrutinise it. So the impact of having the two elections together may be that the Legislative Council does get somehow, if not swamped by politics, then at least politics creeping in. And I think the Gutwin government would be looking to try and get a couple more um, Liberal Party members in there and looking to get the chance of having less opposition to its legislative agenda in the upper house. 
Yeah, I think it's inevitable that the um, there will be a challenge to both of those, both the um, Legislative Council seats post this election, uh, one in Derwent where Labor's member Craig Farrell is standing against a Liberal Party-endorsed uh, mayor of the Derwent Valley, uh, a guy called Ben Shaw. They, they can't possibly so, uh, distance themselves from the spending of the, of the parties uh, in that electorate, and the same in uh, Windermere in the north of the state where Labor's candidate Jeff Lyons is up against Liberal Party's Nick Digan. So I, I just don't, I can't see and nobody else can see how you can say that all the money spent by the Liberal Party on their generic advertising can't also affect the um, um, the spending limits for those two, two electorates. The upper limit, as Kate said, is uh, a candidate can't spend more than $18,000 at the moment. It's, it increases slightly every election um, as, as, because it's indexed, but $18,000 really isn't a lot of money to spend and uh, it'd be easily breached by um, by the campaigns for all the other candidates and by the parties generally. Um, the other thing to remember about the Legislative Council is while it's been um, fiercely independent uh, for, for a long time, in recent years, uh, both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party have been making uh, gains in the, in the Legislative Council in terms of seats and now have about half the members uh, of the Legislative Council are, are party, either Labor or Liberal. Um, and, uh, and also um, the Upper House now, it never used to be um, uh, a case where, or very rarely was it a case where um, ministers were drawn from the Upper House. Now ministers are regularly drawn from the Upper House. So the, the nature of, the, of that uh, chamber is changing. But um, in this particular case, as, you, as everyone, everyone has pointed out, and uh, it, it's almost guaranteed there'll be a legal challenge afterwards and they may have to rerun these elections. There's a quite a long blog post on my website that I've written about the Tassie Upper House, which includes a bunch of data about that shift from being a mostly independent chamber now to being a majority partisan chamber. And, yeah, like you say, I think probably Windermere will switch from being independent probably to Liberal, maybe Labor, probably Liberal, and that will mean that nine out of 15 seats in the Upper House will be members of parties. So that is a big change from a few years ago. The main issue with the pre-selection dramas is they've reflected the calling of a snap election has, has resulted in a bit of um, political and policy chaos for anyone who was in opposition or a minor party or an, or an independent. And when you reflect upon that, it sort of created an uneven playing field out there in campaign land and whether or not that's democratically appropriate I think is worth asking that question and then does that then suggest that Tasmania should have fixed terms because there's no doubt that there would have been less pre-selection drama if there had been more time to do proper vetting and the only other thing I'd say on the um, pre-selection issues is that we now have a, a, a new sort of a uh, screening tool for candidates which probably hasn't been thought of um, previously and that is, you know, how much have you um, indulged in sexting, texting, um, abuse, bullying, in doing anything vulgar even by your own admission and if you've got anything on social media it will come back to bite you. So we've had a bit of that pop up. Yeah, pre-selection issues haven't been just on one side of politics either so the, the Liberals had their own 
issues with uh, Dean Ewington, who um, had posted a lot of stuff on social media in opposition to the to Peter Gutwin's lockdown of Tasmania. So uh, he was uh, basically removed because of that. And Brooks, of course, with the, the as Kate mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, um, uh, has a, a minor legal issue in relation to the storage of uh, weapons that he owns, um, which is a, a police offence, probably not a major one, but um, nevertheless, it is something that that will that, that came up during the campaign. And um, yeah, but I think um, the only other thing I'd say about all that is that it just showed how woefully unprepared Labor was, um, even when. It became fairly obvious after the Western Australian election that uh, a Tasmanian election uh, was on the cards. I think they still failed to um, to get their house in order. So um, that was just a, a campaign error. We should also not neglect that calling a snap election, it, you know, some are calling it a masterstroke for the government and it has caused chaos for the opposition parties and independents but it also forced a heavily pregnant opposition leader to campaign. Now, she can do that. She's doing a really great job. She looks really good, Um, but that is very hard physical work for her, which was unnecessary given that the election was called a year early. The Premier said he could have called the election in June, but she would literally be giving birth or nursing a brand-new baby, but he could have also waited a full term and avoided the situation for the opposition leader entirely. I think Beck White handled that issue very well anyway. She, uh, by saying that, uh, like like many, like all women who have babies, she's still able to work. Exactly. I mean, she can do it and um, she's in good company, but the thing is the physical toll that takes on her every day that she will be campaigning every day, but she's also doing evening events while she's in the very late stages of her pregnancy. If you've ever been pregnant, that is hard work. She's come out and said, I'm, I'm handling it, it's fine. But it, that doesn't mean that it's a reasonable burden to put on someone, even if she's handling it fine. And, you know, like, yeah, lots of pregnant women work until very late in their pregnancies, but also sometimes pregnancies, sometimes babies come early, you know. So, like, she may be doing fine while she's pregnant, but you could never rule out the possibility that a baby could have been born early or something during the campaign, right? It's an unnecessary burden that has been, that's, you know, it's not helpful to the Labor Party that the election was called at this point in uh, you know while their leader was pregnant, right? Even if they if they even if they've done a great, great job of handling it, that is an unnecessary burden that the Labor Party that the government has put on them. Um, and the other point I would add about fixed terms as well is Tasmania is now the only state parliament in Australia that does not have fixed terms. Obviously, the federal government doesn't have fixed terms either, but you know uh, every other state government now has fixed terms. The Tasmanian government are the only ones who still preserve this power. Yes, I would say that not having fixed term governments in Tasmania has allowed the Liberal government to cash in on COVID and to make a plaything of the democratic process and make election timing of its choosing to set maximum chaos. And, you know, whilst that might be a political masterstroke, it causes a fundamentally uneven playing field for everyone else. And I think that that's um, dudding the voters of their opportunity to see their policies and candidates properly rolled out that could be an alternative to the government. I don't think democracy is there to be trifled with like that. And I think that the fixed terms would fix the issue. 
there's a bunch of issues in this election, and we've we've briefly discussed that the government has been reasonably popular. They've done, apart from some early issues around Burnie Hospital, they've done a pretty good job of handling COVID, and uh, there hasn't been any COVID outbreaks in Tasmania for a long time. But my sense of the campaign is no one is talking about that issue. And is that right? And why aren't they talking about that issue? Well, I think that they're not talking about it in a very big way, uh, certainly the government is because um, of what's going on federally with the rollout of the uh, um, vaccines. So I think they want to stop any focus, any any redirection of focus away from um, uh, from Tasmania to what is happening in other states. And I think the Liberals are also running a small target campaign. So going on their record. Um, uh, and, and tying in with that, uh, not letting anybody other than or very few excursions by other ministers out into to do interviews and so on, just sticking with the presidential style of, of um, Gutman's popularity. So just keeping it very, very tightly focused on this is my record, this is what this is what we want, and I, I'm the leader who's got 70% popularity rating. I would agree that uh, with my, what Mike said there, I have to say, though, that the Premier has prefaced his opening remarks in a recent debate and also in the um, campaign launch with sort of the, the um, pointing to having well having managed COVID well and therefore, you know, trust us, we're a steady pair of hands to manage everything else. But apart from that, you've heard very little about it. You've had the Greens, the Greens, one of the Greens MPs is an epidemiologist and the Greens have been lockstep behind the government in everything on COVID, although on not on a lot else. And also the Labor Party has not really found it fertile ground to try and start digging away at the government on COVID because it's actually been a very effective response down here and the Premier has really earned his um, street credit for his um, his work, particularly his early press conferences. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Mike and Kate, for joining me. Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. And thanks, Kate. No worries. You can find the Tally Room Guide to the Tasmanian State Election in full, published at www.tallyroom.com.au slash tas2021. The guide features profiles of all five lower house contests and the three upper house contests, including the uncontested contests. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.